Good morning. (laughs) The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Daniel, um, chapter 2, and a series of different verses that we'll skip to. Um, You can follow along on page 6 of your bulletin. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. To King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. 
This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. This is the word of the Lord. I've got to tell you, I'm still enjoying that picture of Naomi. She just wasn't having it, right? You're trying to baptize her. She's peeling. She even, she even went into silent cry, the, the silent scream. That's how traumatizing that was. I was thinking that, that's a pretty good picture of us before God, right? He's eager to pour out his love upon us, and we're sure you, you are trying to kill me. You are trying to hurt me. If we knew what God knew, we would know how much he loves us. And this is the gospel. It's the gospel we just saw right there. That was you and me, not a little baby. That was you and me. God wants to love you, even when you don't want it. Even with your silent scream, some of you feel that way today. Let's look at this passage today. Let's um, pray first before we do that, then let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your pursuing love. Thank you that you love us to the end. Thank you that you love us in every part of our lives. There's no part of us, no part of what you've called us to day to day where you have not also sent together with us your spirit who is near to us, who gives us your favor, your kindness, who protects us, who fills us, who rebukes and corrects us, who restores us to you when we stray. And so thank you for being everything to us, and we pray you would be that even now as we look at your word. Uh, we want to follow you. We want to know you. So come and speak to us. And please don't hold back. Speak to us right where we most need it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're finishing up our short sermon series on the topic of politics and public life, how the Christian faith drives followers of Christ into a life of serving the common good. And last week, as we looked at Daniel chapter 1, uh, we examined how faithfulness or what faithfulness looks like for those who know they're living in exile. Exile, pushed out of your homeland into another place where you live as a stranger and as a pilgrim. Now, that was real life for Daniel, as we saw that story in that chapter but it's also a metaphor that the Bible uses for followers of Christ in this world, exiles. 
And that means it's a call to persevere faithfully, even when it appears that you're facing defeat. It means resisting political and cultural assimilation uh, when the world or a party or an ideology wants to reprogram your fundamental identity that we ought to resist retaining our true identity in Christ in such a way that we should not easily fit, not too easily fit into any one political party or partisan platform. Where we understand that the Bible calls us to protect, therefore, the transcendent voice and perspective of God's people. Uh, where when Christians engage with and, and talk about politics, we shouldn't simply be parroting uh, the talking points of a given party or news channel. Uh, but rather there should be a counterintuitive strangeness to the way in which we don't easily fit into the world's boxes. Not only because we find resonance with different issues that have been separated and divided across an aisle, man-made aisle, but rather because we talk with the language of faith and with a faithfulness that allows us even to lay down our lives, even for political enemies as we're committed to serving our neighbors and the common good, even against sometimes our own interests, against our own tribal interests. Christians sometimes, for the sake of neighbors, ought to vote against themselves. What could that look like? Laying down our lives in such a way, even as we are people of a Savior who laid down His life for us. Today we're looking at the second chapter of this same wonderful book of Daniel. And Two weeks ago we focused on the theme of idolatry, political idolatry. Last week we focused on the theme of exile. Today we're going to be looking at the theme of power. We'll take a peek at it in two ways, briefly really today. Power, a display of false power, and then the dream of true power. False power, and then true power. Let's take a look. First, a display of false power. We find this, of course, in the life and the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, the story goes like this. We're told in verse 1 that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Dreams that were so troubling, so disturbing to him, that it left him sleepless for several nights. So, like all of us would have, well, he wants to know. What do these dreams, these disturbing dreams, mean? Well, he has a few resources that the average one of us don't have. He calls together his court of magicians and enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers. And they come to him and they say, well, yeah, no problem, boss. We'll tell you what that dream means. We're ready to interpret it. So just tell us, what, what was it? Tell us about this dream. We're ready to go. Then to their surprise, Nebuchadnezzar answers with just the most unpredictable and wild comeback. He says, no, uh, you need to interpret this dream, but you also need to tell me what the dream was. What was it? Then tell me what it meant. What? A completely unreasonable request. But there you have it. 
a guy in love with his own power and glory. And this is what those astrologers, those people that were hired to talk about things that were beyond human understanding, what they replied in verse 10. There's no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult, too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. And this all too honest and realistic response, we're told, made the king so angry And furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. They're dead. Unless they can come up with the answer. And this decree, of course, included Daniel, whom we've gotten to know, together with his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay, now, this is not just a portrait or a profile of an unstable tyrant. But I think we can also understand it to be more broadly a portrait of the ungodly manipulation of political power, this power of Nebuchadnezzar. You see, what he was really up to was he was inflicting upon all of his people the the demand, the unrealistic demand of limitless wisdom and insight. This is sometimes what our politics do, demands unlimited wisdom inside. You need to see it all and know it all. The invitation to be mind readers, which of course, if we're honest, is just too difficult, indeed even impossible. It includes the demand to to be godlike in the sense of desiring and even expecting to achieve God-sized results. The astrologers, they say of this request of Nebuchadnezzar's, no one can reveal it except the gods, and yet here is political power saying, no, you've got to do it. You've got to do that God thing. You need to achieve it. And of course, we have, obviously, the exercise of control by fear and by threats. Verse 5, we heard those words from Nebuchadnezzar, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. In other words, this is the power, this is the manipulation, this is the demand of political power. You must know all things, you must do and achieve all things, and if you don't, you will perish. Do all things, know all things, and if you don't, you will perish. In other words, we tend to be assaulted by what you might call the politics of fear. Both the right and the left are very often driven, and we see it often even today, driven by the dread of what can only be described as a dawning apocalypse. The same basic sort of fear only cast differently depending upon your political persuasion and vision. Our country is going to hell because of the threat of liberalism, says one side. No, our country is going to hell because of the threat of fascism, says the other. Everyone can agree about this. Everything is terrible, 
And surely we are all dead, if not actually, then certainly spiritually and morally, if we don't act now. And therefore, every choice, every headline, and certainly every election is therefore what might be called and has been called a Flight 93 election. You know, that reference to that plane on the fateful day of 9-11 so many years ago where terrorists had hijacked the plane and where the passengers apparently needed to muster up the moral courage to charge the cockpit in order to save not themselves but their nation. Flight 93 election... That's the metaphor, you charge the cockpit or you die. Those are the stakes, those are the terms of so much of our politics today, the politics of fear. And that's not to say that there isn't grounds and reason for real fear, the way in which harmful policies can hurt real people, even you and yourselves, your loved ones, the way in which a misguided nation can become morally astray to the long-term detriment of the soul of our people. There is, real for concern, there is real reason for concern, and yet too easily we slip into a debilitating and haunting politics of fear. You might also say there's a Nebuchadnezzar-like politics of hubris, pride in our midst. A politics of hubris. The way in which a partisan spirit so often is driven by the, the, the quiet belief that we do in fact know all things. That we really do see all things. That re- really can achieve all things. And most of all, we are certainly right in all things. We can do no wrong. It's the reason why there is so much polarization, so much division across our country, even to the point of not even being able to befriend those of different political persuasions. It's why the church, the grace of God, ought to be the place where we see this the most. I say this, I say it again. What we can achieve and accomplish by God's grace in cross-political reconciliation, that's an appropriate word, forgiveness and love amongst political enemies, as it were, what we can see and bear witness to and evidence of reconciliation of this sort may be one of the greatest kinds of witnesses to Christ that we can demonstrate as a church, as followers of Christ to this city and to this nation. Will we dare to try to labor in that direction? But these divisions are caused by a sort of hubris, an arrogance, that I'm right and you're wrong. And not just wrong, but you're evil. And if evil, then you're the enemy, and you must be defeated at all costs. It's Flight 93. Every time, every election, every conversation. But of course, we know that no one has it all right You might even profess that formally. Theologically, you might believe that. And yet there's a different kind of humility, of course, that the Word of God calls us to. A humility in the public square that's grounded in, first of all, our human limitations and an honest account of human sin. Reinhold Niebuhr was a political philosopher and theologian that lived in the last century. 
He did his work and ministry and study around the World War II era during that time, a time when the country was not only broken, but also the entire world. And he was a clear condemner of communism, and yet he was also uh, very clear-eyed about the tendencies and the weaknesses of the United States. And on more than one occasion, he wrote cautioning Americans about the ways in which we can tend to become intoxicated with illusions about our own goodness. He was talking about our nation as a whole. I think we can also apply this to the way in which we inhabit different political parties, ideologies, the way we assume that if I'm a Republican or a Democrat, if I'm a conservative or a progressive or liberal, I must be right and I must believe, therefore, that I am inherently good in my intentions and correct in my morality in the way that I see the most important things in life. Here's what Niebuhr had to say about that assurance and confidence of our moral goodness and our ability to see things rightly. He writes, we must exercise our power, yes, but we give ourselves too much credit. We believe we are capable of perfect, almost sinless exercises in power. We forget the lengths we will go to rationalize the way we exercise power, and we have been so deluded by the concept of our innocency that we are ill-prepared to deal with the temptations of power which now assail us. We're convinced, I'm innocent. I'm, they're the ones that are wrong. They're the ones that are full of sin. They're the ones with the clouded political lens. Of course, it's true, and I know Niebuhr would agree that Christians should be among the most hopeful people, hopeful people in the public square, but we should also be the most humbled by the reality of sin. We are more like Nebuchadnezzar than we want to believe, more tempted by power than we want to believe. It's just that he had it and we don't. What do we think we would do with it once it's in our hands? Do we believe in the sinfulness of the human heart that we really are, as Niebuhr so often taught, subject to the temptations of self-interest, of self-deception, of self-righteousness, that we are limited in our human capabilities and we're limited by the problem of sin? No one has it all right, tempted though we may believe that about ourselves. This is something that Daniel exemplified in his life. Even in this story, the way he carried himself, not with swagger or hubris, and not either trembling with fear, but with the right kind of kingdom humility. We see this in the way that he immediately turned to God in prayer. We see the humility of prayer in verse 18. He urged them, his friends, to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. I mean, I mean this practically. How often when you feel troubled about headlines, when you hear about political views or policies that you feel are immoral or wrong or off base, how often do you commit those things to prayer? Or is your first impulse to tweet about it fight about it, or shout about it? 
How often do you turn those moments of political anxiety into opportunities to kneel before the Lord and to pray? We see also David submitting himself to the wisdom of God. He celebrates this in this prayer. In the second half of verse 21, he says of God, God gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. In other words, God is the only one who is all wise. The politics of hubris tells us that, no, you know what you need. It tells us, no, your party knows what's right. Uh, Here, Daniel says, in its essence, no, God alone knows. God alone is wise. God alone, in fact, is the one who is sovereign over all things. He alone possesses all authority, verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises others up. In other words, here is the humbling truth. All power, all wielded political power is in fact derivative power. No president, no king, no local city official, no populace and we the people possesses any kind of authority over others except that which is given to them by God himself. All human authority is given, and don't miss it, taken by God. This ought to introduce a certain element of fear and trembling about the way that we handle the authority that's been given to us. This, of course, extends through all of life, whether the authority of a parent, the authority of a teacher, the authority of a citizen. Whatever authority you've been given, you've been given to God, and it can also be taken from you by God. It ought to give you a sense of stewardship in trembling before this high calling that has been given to you, to me. And of course, by saying that we acknowledge that God is on his throne, even in the realm of politics and public life, that doesn't mean, therefore, that we slip into a pacifism or a quietism, where we kind of sit back and say, well, God is reigning, so I don't need to do anything. I don't need to actually take responsibility. Both can be true at the same time. After all, we must be confronted with the sober truth that God was on his throne. Yes, because he always is. God was on his throne even during the darkest days of U.S. history. So his kingship, therefore, doesn't mean that we can sit back and not fight for justice in Jesus' name. It doesn't mean that, therefore, if Jesus reigns, then he will accomplish his reign in real terms apart from his people's action. No, it is both and. The question is, do we do that with a humble sense of contingency, accountability, fear and trembling, even with a true hope and sense that nothing is ever final in politics so long as God is the one who ultimately reigns. Nothing is final until God says so. And so already, even in the life of Daniel, we have these challenges to the politics of fear, seen in the way in which we can rest in God's uh, authority and believe in His 
wisdom, where we have challenges to the politics of hubris, found in the humility that expresses itself in in prayer and in the admission that we don't know all things and we can't by ourselves accomplish all things. We even have this unusual gesture of charity and, shall we say, reconciliation even in the life of Daniel here in verse 24 when he goes to the official and he says, I'm ready to tell the meaning of this dream. He also says, verse 24, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king and I will interpret his dream for me. Right? So Daniel doesn't go to him and say, hey, look, I'm going to win the contest. Kill them all. Here's your winner. No, Daniel actually says, save them all. He promotes the good of them all. You see, the person that lives out this vision of kingdom humility is actually the servant of all. There's a non-competitive spirit that is built into the one that has submitted himself to the kingship of God in such a way. He promotes truly in the deepest way the common good. Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king and I will interpret his dream for him. And what was that dream? Let's take a look then at this dream of true power. Daniel shows us this dream of an everlasting kingdom, and of course, it comes in this form. It's a strange one. If you're reading this for the first time, you're thinking, what an odd thing to find in the Bible. In verse 31, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar saw a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. And Daniel explains, the head of the statue was made of pure gold. And the chest and the arms were made of silver. Then the belly and the thighs of the statue were made of bronze. And the legs were made of iron. And the feet were made partly of iron, partly of baked clay. And then he explains that each of these components reflect different earthly kingdoms, different sources of political power that would be found in the world in this period of history. Beginning with Nebuchadnezzar, who was symbolized by the head of this statue, Daniel says. That is Babylon. But then after them would come the Medo-Persian Empire, the chest and the arms of silver. Then following them would be the Greek Empire, the belly and the thighs. And then after them, the Roman Empire, the legs and the feet made of iron and partly of iron and, and also partly baked clay. And so kingdom after kingdom would follow in succession, one conquering the other, each one successive one inferior to the previous one in glory and strength, moving from gold on down to clay, perhaps maybe pointing to moral decline, but actually there's also an increase in durability, uh, moving to the strength of iron, the long reign of the Roman Empire. Each of them maybe are, are used in a different way by God in history as they represent different members of this body of a statue, an arm and a head and a belly and a thigh and a leg. But what matters most here is how the story concludes, how the metaphor, the dream concludes. And it concludes with a picture of a rock. We're told in verses 34 to 35, while you were watching... Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. 
It struck the statue, which was then all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue, what happened to it? It became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. In verse 44, Daniel explains what this rock represents. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a kingdom, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. Daniel is describing, of course, a picture of the kingdom of God. It's not a, an earthly kingdom. It's not a geopolitical entity. It's not pointing to any one nation or people. Rather, it's a spiritual kingdom, the reign and the presence of Christ himself, the King. And this is a kingdom that, first of all, is not made by human hands. That phrase repeated again and again. It, it is not a, a part of, the, of a political engine or tool of this world. It, it expresses itself through those things, to be sure. Uh, but it cannot be identified with any man-made political party or man-made geopolitical nation. No, this is the power and the presence of God the King. We're told that this is a kingdom that will last and reign forever. It is literally from out of this world. This is heaven coming down to earth, this kingdom of God. And most interestingly, we're told that it starts small. It's a little rock. It's, it, it would, in a contest against this stone statue, surely be crushed beneath its feet. It is by comparison a pebble, and yet somehow mysteriously, unexpectedly, unpredictably, it has the power to destroy all kingdoms. It has the power of God to crush all Nebuchadnezzar-like wieldings of ungodly power. It starts small, and yet it does grow and grow to fill the whole earth and even presents itself like a mountain that will endure forever. This, friends, is a picture, a dream of true power, the power of the king and the kingdom of God. One of the most important things to notice about it for our purposes is the way in which it, it starts small and then it extends itself over time, though it one day finally presents itself as an indestructible and eternal mountain. The power of God's kingdom, therefore, is now, but it is also not yet. It has begun to break into this world through Christ's cross and resurrection, and yet it will not be fully consummated, will not be fully expressed in all of its glory, making all things right, overturning all evil, undoing all injustice. When Christ himself will wipe away every tear of sadness, sorrow, and sin, that day will not come until one day. It is not 
yet. And so we live in this tension between the beginning of the dream and the end of the dream. This tension between the rock and the mountain. See, Jesus has begun to make all things new, but we do not yet see that reality made complete. And this is exactly what makes engagement in public life so difficult. Because we long to see justice, and yet justice only shows up imperfectly, doesn't it? We long to see healing and wholeness. We, we even weep for it. And yet it, it sometimes feels like it slips right through your fingers. We long to see movement towards this great mountain of wholeness and justice. And we believe that the moral arc of the universe bends ever towards the final reign of Christ. And yet we look around and most of public life looks like three steps forward and two steps back, if not two steps forward and three steps back. But beloved, don't you know what we have in this dream, in fact, is a paradigm, a model, a paradigm that we find manifest most fully in the cross of Christ. Who was this rock, after all, that came in smallness and unpredictable power? Who was it that came that in, in, in seeming defeat and yet turned out to have accomplished final victory? Who was it for the salvation of the world needed to die and yet in three days was raised to life and promises to bring about nothing short of resurrection to all dead things in life, including even your and my soul? Who was it but Jesus? Jesus, who in Luke 20 describes himself as this very stone that will crush all earthly kingdoms to pieces. Jesus, who himself in Luke 13 described his kingdom as a mustard seed, a small, tiny, little, crushable, fragile thing that when planted one day unpredictably grows and becomes a tree so large that all the birds of the earth can perch upon it and make their home in it. Jesus, who said and told us, he told us so, all things in his kingdom start small, start in weakness, but grow and eventually we become the very power of God. A tree, a mountain that will cover even the whole earth. But do you believe in this paradigm that in its beginning, in these middle days, it will always look like the foolishness and the weakness of God? The way of the cross never looks wise. The way of turning the cheek never looks smart and practical. The way of loving your enemy never looks like it works. But behold the mystery of the cross of our King. This is the paradigm, and so it sets before us the pattern of His kingdom. This kingdom that always starts with weakness and smallness, because social transformation, therefore, is in God's view, in his kingdom, one that is always gradual and often unimpressive. It, it starts not as a mountain from the beginning, but a stone. Uh, not as a tree, but as a mustard seed. And if this is the pattern, 
so embracing of things that are small and weak, is it any surprise to us that in this kingdom that we are drawn to the priority and the possibilities of small and weak things? Which is why we find in so many pages of the scriptures that the proper exercise of Jesus' kingship, even in the kingdoms of this world, ought to include preeminently the protection of the poor and the vulnerable. As we see in Psalm 72, this psalm, this song, this poem about the King of God, the Messiah. How does he wield his power, his great indomitable power? He wields it for the weak. This is what it says in that psalm. May he defend the king. May he defend the cause of the poor. Give deliverance to the children of the needy. Crush the oppressor. He has pity on the weak and on the needy. Novelist Pearl Buck, who was, of course, the winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature, won for the book, The Good Earth, She was also the daughter of missionaries and spent most of her life in China, herself went back to China as a missionary. Well, she once said these provocative and very helpful words, the test of a civilization is the way that it cares for its helpless members. The way of the kingdom is and always has been for the regard of the poor, the vulnerable, and the needy among us. And yet, though this is the pattern, this embrace of the weak and this embrace of weakness itself, of course, the final posture is not only that of humility, but humility held in tension with hope. Because not all things are mustard seed. There's also a tree. Not all things are only the pebble and the rock, but there's also the mountain that will one day cover the earth. There's a kingdom confidence, a humble confidence that Christians can bear. And this is what gives us power to persevere day in and day out in our broken and troubled world. How do you keep going in light of this yes and not yet? How do you keep going in these middle days between the arrival of the rock and the final moment of this great mountain of joy and justice? How do you persevere Our job, according to one of my mentors, Steve Garber, is to, in his words, make peace with proximate justice. How do God's people remain faithful to the kingdom when evil and injustice seem to rule all around us? When there seems to be more heartache than happiness? You know what our job is? Our job is to believe in this unique vision of the kingdom, to believe that we can not give into the hopelessness of believing that nothing can be accomplished. Don't give into the hopelessness of nothing. Don't give into the idealism of everything. It can all happen overnight, but rather live into the faithfulness of something. Loving mercy doing justice, ordinary acts of hope and faithfulness. 
This is what Steve Garber writes about this notion of proximate, not perfect, but proximate justice that we're to seek. Proximate justice, he writes, allows us to make peace with some justice, some mercy, all the while realizing that it will only be in the new heaven and new earth that we find all our longings finally fulfilled, that we will see all of God's demands finally met. It is only then, only then, there we will see all of the conditions for human flourishing finally in place, socially, economically, and politically. As we wait for the arrival of that mountain, as we even labor in the direction of that mountain, we pray that known prayer, that prayer that I know you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that because we believe that God answers that prayer here and now, and yet heaven is not fully here. That day is yet not yet. You see, perfectionism in politics will never be able to sustain us, will never give us the strength, the metal to persevere in the public square. It's this vision of the kingdom that guards us from the cynicism that says it's just never going to happen. No, no, no. His kingdom will come, and it is coming. It's what guards us from the exhaustion of feeling like it's all on you. No, 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 no. God is the one who reigns, and it's a kingdom that is made not by human hands, but by God, even as he delivers his kingdom through human hands. It's this vision that guards us from perfectionism, this demand, why is it not happening per perfectly? knowing that up close, even the cross of Christ didn't look perfect. And it's what guards us from what you might call nowism, the impatience of, of tapping our feet and saying, why is this taking so long? As we cultivate in our souls the patience and perseverance, even the holy urgency of seeing that rock become a mountain. Garber concludes, in the here and now, I vote, but always with a torn heart. I have not yet met a candidate or a political proposal that embodies all that I dream for as one whose deepest loyalties are grounded in the hope of the kingdom. We take up our responsibility as citizens, realizing that our best efforts are clay-footed. Our best insights are flawed. And yet it matters for this earth and the one that it is to come that we work alongside others to establish what Walker Percy called signposts in a strange land, exiles, of what is already real and true and right in the now, but not yet, of the kingdom. And as Steve often loves to do, he then echoes this vision in his reflection on the words of Bono, who once said of his own vocation as a songwriter and as a singer, Bono's words of you 2 I'm a musician, I write songs, I just hope that when the day is done, I'll have torn a little corner off of the darkness. Isn't that what you and I are called to do? 
not with hubris, to declare that the darkness is already defeated, uh, not with fear, to say that we have been overcome irreparably by the darkness, but in kingdom faithfulness, with a vision of proximate justice, with the little ordinary ways in which we ourselves can become bearers of this kingdom, even as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in every sphere of life, we ourselves tear off a little corner off the darkness, a little corner off the darkness, day in and day out, until Christ one day comes and covers the whole earth with his glory. Christians should do pub politics and public life fundamentally differently because of this fundamental different vision of power and kingdom and kingdom humility. We live according to a different story. The question is whether you profess Christ or not, what is the story of political progress and persuasion that you are living according to? Do you know that? Whether you realize it or not, Every time you engage, every time you vote, every time you love, every time you serve, you are living in light of some narrative of where we are coming from, where we are now, and where we are heading. What is the story, functionally, that you've been living according to? And is it this story, the story of the now and not yet, the small stone that becomes a mountain, is this the story in your heart? Is it that kingdom? Is it that king? May it be so. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would fill our hearts with this dream, this picture, this hope, this humility, and help us to walk in light of your cross, your resurrection, and your coming kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing.